Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. And welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu, and what we do on Condensed Histories is we show that pop culture may be entertaining, but it may actually be teaching you some things about history all at the same time. This particular episode is quite different, but I really hope you come with me on this journey. The best way to describe what I'm trying to do is to tell you a little story in my life. More than a decade ago, I went to a very large industry trade exhibition in Berlin. Their large exhibition halls are called Messers, and the big one in Berlin is in two distinct parts. It's huge for the record. All the Messers in Germany are colossal compared to most other countries for various clever reasons. So they're kind of an epicenter to do trade fairs and shows and exhibitions and conferences and all that good stuff. There I was in Berlin and we drove up to the huge exhibition hall and the front half of it is very modern. It's a bit like if you know the Pompidou Centre in Paris, it's got basically all the innards of the building outside. So you can kind of see vents and chutes and tunnels and columns and things like that. And it looks like a giant spaceship has landed in Berlin. The second half of it is much older. It's kind of in an art deco style. It's got uh, woodwork. It's got marble facades. It's got little slit windows with stained glass in it. And as we went closer to it, undeniably, the best bit, the e most easily accessible bit, and because it's so huge, the bit where everybody's going to be coming into was the front science fiction-y bit. However, I discovered that the stand that we had at the show was in the other bit, the more Art Deco-y area. And that was perhaps not the, the best location because it was going to take hours for people to make their way through all the other halls to get to our bit. But I was talking to one of my German colleagues and said to them, I thought we were quite lucky because this is a much more beautiful building. And he turned around to me and he was a really nice guy, he always had a sense of humour, but suddenly his face dropped and he said, I hate this building. Albert Speer built it. Now, if you don't know who Albert Speer is, he's quite often referred to simply as Hitler's architect. He actually got involved in the war effort, and he's probably the only architect in history who ended up doing time in prison for war crimes after World War II. 
it's a really interesting relationship between him and Hitler. There is my favorite book of all time is Albert Speer and his battle with truth by Gitta Sereni. It's an amazing book. I would thoroughly recommend you read it. It's full on, no doubt about it. And it's about a thousand pages long too, but oh my God, it really dissects what it is to make moral choices in this world. But the point is this. Albert Speer was an architect. He wasn't like a soldier who became an architect. He came out of university doing architecture. And indeed, this building was built before World War II. And during World War II, it did not become an arms dump. It was not a factory to make tanks and it had nothing to do with the Holocaust. So this building in and of itself had done nothing wrong. In fact, it was bombed heavily by the Allies in World War II. But because the man who built and designed it was part of the final solution, was part of the Third Reich, was part of the Nazis, it meant to this person I was talking to that it was a, a building they could never enjoy, that it was shameful or disgusting, a reminder of the dark history of Germany in the 20th century. And that's what I want to talk about today. Wow, Jem started serious, hasn't he? Yes, because I want to talk a little bit about the conversation about the person versus what they did versus their political or personal beliefs. Because in the social media world, and I am aware of the irony of doing all of this on a podcast, which you've downloaded on your phone, no doubt, and you've got me talking in your ears. Hello. Hi. I'll try and be nice. The reality is that with social media at the moment, people can get super hysterical, sometimes for very good reasons, sometimes perhaps not, or sometimes just grabbing something and running with it without really understanding it. I'll give you another example. Recently, it was the 200th commemoration, it's been 200 years since the death of Napoleon. And there was a stately home in England that happened to have a copy of his death mask. Back before photography, when people died, particularly famous people, they would cover their face in, in either wax or plaster to preserve their face. So we literally have the death mask of somebody like Oliver Cromwell. And in this case, they were repairing the death mask of Napoleon for all of posterity, basically. And so I put out a link on Twitter to this article and said, the death of a legend. A number of people liked the article, but only one person responded and just went, you mean racist? Okay. So I tried to have a conversation with this person, which you're probably sitting there going, Jem, why do that? They're clearly a troll. But I just can't help myself sometimes because was Napoleon a racist? Yes. Was he a warmonger? Yes. Did he carry out a number of atrocities in his career? Yes, particularly in the Middle East. But that doesn't stop him being a legend. The word legend does not mean you're a good person. What it means is you're remembered. And absolutely, Napoleon is remembered. He defined an era for 25 years in Europe. His nephew ended up ruling France a couple of decades later as Napoleon III. When Napoleon's son grew up, the whole of Europe was on tenterhooks when he joined the army because, oh my goodness, is he going to end up being like dad? Now, actually, he died pretty young and he himself had no children. But the point is, 
the 1800s had the shadow of Napoleon cast over it, for good or bad. You cannot understand European history from 1800 to 1900 without mentioning Napoleon. So, yeah, he's important. Would I want to have a cup of tea with him? No, not particularly. But that's the thing. So to somebody, they just managed to distill the entirety of Napoleon into one area which might be true, but is missing the point. And this is an uncomfortable conversation, I know. And I understand things like woke and cancel culture have been used by right-wing groups to sort of say, you're just getting hysterical over nothing because I have the right to an opinion. You are, but also you are knowingly saying things that are pretty racist and inflammatory. Let's have a conversation about this. Another example is you get some people saying, look, you go back a couple of generations and everybody's racist. And I, I heard a, a black female comedian saying, pretty sure my grandfather wasn't racist. Now, look, I don't know the guy. But the point is either you're deliberately misinterpreting the point or you're pulling the wool over your eyes because the point is this society changes maybe that particular grandfather wasn't racist although just to think that only white people are racist is is a misnomer it's racist a statement in its own right every nation every ethnicity tends to feel like they're the best and there is lots of language out there in the world to prove that i'll come on to that in a moment but the point is, let's, admit, let's take that grandfather and let's say he wasn't racist. Chances are he probably had what we would consider today fairly sexist ideas. Or maybe, you know, what we would consider today homophobia or transphobia. Because society changes. So, yeah, if you go back 500 years, people would have had a pretty dim view to society in the 21st century, they just wouldn't get it. They would say, why would you say this? You know, well, women clearly aren't as good as men. You know, look, the kings are all kings and the, the men are all the warriors and the women just tend to the children. It's because you haven't allowed them to do anything else, you idiots. You know, so things have changed since then, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about these people because they held what we consider today sexist views, racist views, etc. It gets complicated. What do we do with these awkward phrases from the past? Shakespeare is the most famous writer in the world. You know my dream. To be recognized now and for all time as indisputably the greatest writer that ever lived and to buy the second biggest house in Stratford. Exactly. That's it in a nutshell. In a nutshell? What's that mean? Oh, tis just one of the numerous inspired phrases which I am wont to coin <laughs> and which I'm confident will enter the common idiom. But if you read Merchant of Venice, a favorable interpretation is it's a problematic play. If you're Jewish, you're just going to call it what it is. It's anti-Semitic. It's not the most anti-Semitic thing out there at the time. Many defenders of Shakespeare point out that there were no Jews in England when he was writing. That's because round about 1300, King Edward I had stacked up lots of debts with the Jewish community. So came up with the evil but genius idea of if I kick them all out of the country, I don't owe them the money anymore. And of all the people who could have asked the Jewish communities to come back to England, it was ironically Oliver Cromwell who did it. 
And he even did it for religious reasons as well. So it's, it's a very strange story. But that means that from about 1300 to 1640s, no Jews in England. And that's exactly in that period where Shakespeare was writing. But there's no doubt that it's anti-Semitic. So does that mean we should ban Merchant of Venice? Does that mean that because Shakespeare has shown various insensitivities also to other cultures as well, I'm thinking Othello here and the Moors, that's both Muslim and black, do, do, do we then just cancel Shakespeare? Do we just ban him? Or do we have a, does it start a conversation where we describe the society that Shakespeare's writing in? That's a more interesting and helpful example. He hath disgraced me and hindered me half a million, laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated my enemies, and what's his reason? I am a Jew! I've got lots more of these, and I will be coming to sort of perhaps more recent examples in a minute. But first of all, I want to talk about Howard Phillips. You know Howard Phillips. You might know him better by his, weirdly, his initials and surname, which is H.P. Lovecraft. Now, if you don't know H.P. Lovecraft, you've probably accidentally been influenced by him because he created a whole new type of horror writing in the early 20th century. Up until then, things have been werewolves and vampires, and, and if you like, it was a defined beast trying to get at you. And what Lovecraft came up with was this idea of cosmic horror. He wrote very few novels, but he wrote loads of short stories. This is because at the time he wasn't so much a published author as a writer who would sort of syndicate and push out his short stories and basically got paid by the word. He was born in 1890 and died in 1937. So he was only 47 years old when he passed away. He is best remembered for his, there are different ways to pronounce this. I'm gonna say it twice. There's Call of Cthulhu or Call of Cthulhu. And that might sound familiar to you. Cthulhu was one of the elder gods, a huge giant covered in scales with bat-like wings and a head like an octopus. And if you're sitting there going, well, that sounds disgusting, that's the point. He made up completely new types of creatures and actually very rarely were they described. They were talked more about in an elemental form, things like a foul stench or gibbering madness or voices in the darkness. And quite often if his characters just even looked at these cosmic horrors, it would turn them mad. They might die of a heart attack. In the Mountains of Madness, for example, what he wrote just before anybody actually got to the South Pole, conjecturalizing maybe, you know, there's some hidden ancient secrets that we should keep undisturbed at the South Pole. This is all great stuff. However, he never really became famous in his own time. He got discovered and he has been heavily influential with everybody from Stephen King to video games like Dead Space. So basically anything that's got sort of gibbering horrors and lots of tentacly creatures lurking in the dark, elder gods looking down on you, Hellboy, for example, quite often riffs on this, both the movies and the comic books. He has been incredibly influential. He's basically your favorite author or writer's 
favourite horror author, if you see what I mean. A bit like how the Velvet Underground, they didn't sell many of their first album, but every single person who bought that went on to create an amazing musical career themselves. However, what has been pointed out about Lovecraft is he wrote a... It's, it's barely a ten-line poem, which is... How can I say this nicely without me getting horribly censored? It's an incredibly racist story about how between humans and animals, there is the black race. It is, and he even uses the N-word in it, it's horrible and horrific, and that's clearly what he believed. It's written in an utterly unapologetic style, and it is disgusting and disgraceful which has led to some people saying we should best forget about this man. Let's face it, he made no impact in his own lifetime. And that's true. But the thing about his writings, and the reason why people have really had to struggle with this, is that inherent racism isn't in the rest of his literature. So we know what the man thought, but it wasn't an agenda he was constantly pushing out. Now, I think this is brilliant, but a black community of writers and directors and actors most of which were already fans of Lovecraft, but aware of this extreme problematic issue, created the TV show Lovecraft Country. It's on HBO, and it's very full-blooded. It very much takes into account the whole cosmic horror and horrific viscera and all this kind of stuff. But it's set in South of America during the Jim Crow era, so it therefore combines the cosmic weird, fantastical horror, and also the horror of racism, which is, if you like, the perfect way to, to be describing Lovecraft. So that's where somebody's flaws have been turned into an additional way to have a slightly different conversation about race in America in the 20th century. And it's remarkable, if very full-blooded, TV series. That's something from the 20th century, kind of within living memory, but let's take something even further back, shall we? Let's talk about Caravaggio. Michelangelo Caravaggio is one of the greatest... No, not Michelangelo, Michelangelo. This is a different guy who lived about a century later, but still considered a, a late Renaissance painter, who by 1606 was referred to as the most famous painter in Rome, and there were a lot of good painters in Rome at that time. He had it all, but he was a very troubled man. He hang out with a gang. They would frequently get drunk and start barroom brawls. People got seriously injured. The gang at times even killed people. But every time this all flared up, Caravaggio's skill and beauty with the brush, creating incredibly emotional paintings and a master of lighting them in an extremely dramatic way, which heavily influenced painters moving on into the next century. He always had basically some rich person to cover his ass to make sure that he wasn't going to get into too much trouble. He even skipped out of town for a little bit because he didn't pay his rent. The man was obviously an unspeakable drunk, a wastrel in every possible way. But in 1606, he carried out a duel against a man called Tomasoni, and it ended up in the death of Tomasoni. 
And at that point, Tomasoni was well-connected enough in his own right that it couldn't just be swept under the carpet. And Caravaggio was finally forced to face the music. Oh, no, what's that? Well, he skipped out of Rome and moved to Malta for a while, laid low, didn't face the music, even though he murdered somebody. Okay, fine. And he eventually dies in 1610, just to, just to sort of fill out the Caravaggio thing. So I don't know what exactly what Greg is going to title this one, but I'm going to suggest you might have seen at the front cancel Caravaggio, because look, if we put Caravaggio into the modern world, let's change him from an artist artist, which kind of isn't as a big thing nowadays. Let's say he's a musical artist, had multiple platinum selling albums out there, won a bunch of Grammys and things like that, okay? So, you know, bit of a cultural zeitgeist. Everyone respects the quality of Caravaggio's music. Everyone knows he's a bit of a bad boy. I mean, you could argue that this is sort of getting into the area of the kind of gangster rap music in the 80s and 90s. So, yeah, we know he's a bad boy. Yeah, he's got a bit of a rap sheet with the police. But then he actually kills somebody and then leaves the country and refuses to come back for trial. That will end his career. And yet, 400 years after Caravaggio's passing, everyone acknowledges the murder, but the art remains. Because if you like, everybody who was affected by the story of the murder are all dead anyway. Natural causes are going to get you if you lived 450 years ago. So that's been forgotten. The crimes of the man have been forgotten, but the art lives on. And so Caravaggio... There's no black mark against him. He's in the same conversation as the slightly more famous Michelangelo and Da Vinci, but, you know, others as well. So the point is, I'm concerned because whereas everyone's screaming and shouting on Facebook right now or Twitter or Instagram, wherever, the point is this. We may be as angry as we want right now, but two things are going to happen. One, we're all going to pass away, but whatever these people created is going to still be there in a 100 years' time. And secondly, society's going to change again. One of the biggest mistakes people make when they start condemning people from the past is that's because that's what people thought in those days. And this is what we think in this day. And if you can't spot the fact that things have changed and therefore are going to continue to change, you're an idiot. Because I guarantee right now, no matter how politically correct you are, how aware you are of, of sensibilities, of minorities, of vulnerable groups and communities, and I absolutely say you should do that. You should be as nice and as helpful and as positive as possible to everybody around you, irrespective of colour, creed, race, gender, stereotypes, etc. Be nice. Because life is hard and we're all struggling. So just try and be as nice as you can to other people. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. But the morality of the early 21st century is not what morality is going to be in the beginning of the 22nd century. Things will move on. Your grandchildren will be appalled at your views in just the same way you were appalled at your grandparents' views. I'll give you an example where people are trying to be helpful in the UK. There's this relatively new term called BAME, which is Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic. And I just want you to pause for that for a moment, because an example, one of my kids actually has three friends who have lots of different ethnic minority backgrounds, okay? So one kid, his grandparents come from Nigeria. Another kid, his parents come from Hong Kong. And the third child, grandparents come from India. So if you like that Bane, the black, Asian and minority ethnic, it is beautifully summarized by my son and his friends. And you know what? They got a lot in common when they all come together and when they're allowed to, you know, obviously with COVID restrictions, all this kind of stuff. But they used to love playing a video game together called Gang Beasts, which is a very silly, hilarious game, which the children don't know, but I'm going to argue is probably even more fun if you're drunk when playing it. But I, I digress. But they went go ape together. So, you know, they all like the same things. They they all interact with each other. They all really get on really, really well. And I'm really proud of that because, hey, it proves that it doesn't matter what the race is. If everyone's just nice to each other, we can all basically get on with each other. However, lumping those three children together and saying they are all experiencing the same thing, they're clearly not. So, you know, do those three children, when they go back home, all eat the same foods? No. Do they use the same language in each case? No. I happen to know the Nigerian, everybody speaks English. But with the Hong Kong, Cantonese is used at home. Absolutely fine. So the point is that by lumping everybody together that isn't white Anglo-Saxon is actually what all you've done is just recreate the, the term foreigner. 
because these people don't have the same cultural references, they don't experience the same levels of racism, there are other stereotypes and cliches around each ethnic group, none of this is okay. But by us pretending that they're all going through the same experience is just as unhelpful as saying, they're, they're foreigners. Now, for the record, my name is Jem Deducci, and if you haven't worked out by now that I ain't from an English heritage, then come on, where do you think that name come from? Both my parents are immigrants. But if you like, I'm lucky enough that both my parents basically look white, and I pass as a white guy. So until I tell people my name, everybody just assumes I'm John Smith from, I don't know, Watford or something like that. So no, that's not actually what's happened in my family. So I'm lucky enough that just in terms of looks, always been able to pass as a local, never had much racism in that way. However, when I start talking about my heritage, I remember being teased about it in school. My name, people can never pronounce the surname or spell it. You know, I've said Deducu, but it isn't spelt the way that sounds. So yeah, Gem as well. I've had some email exchanges with people where I was never in the same room at the same time and people assume I'm a girl. And on one occasion, one hilarious occasion, this guy in New Zealand started flirting with me a little bit and uh, I had to very quickly subtly point out to him I'm a man not interested uh, yeah so <laughs> hey what are you wearing wearing a suit what are you wearing um, anyway I'm on the very edges of this conversation okay I am NOT gonna claim that I get sort of racially harassed like so many other people out there but I've had a slight taste of it more than some of my completely white anglo-saxon English friends that I've known for many many years so that's a tiny little bit from, from my perspective. But I want to sort of point out, as I said, you know, every country, every race and ethnicity has its own foibles. It's a myth. The reality is because white European slash American powers have been the forefront of power for the last 200 years, we've seen the worst that white people can do. But I'll give you three words. In China, it's guailo. In Japan, it's gaijing. And in Hebrew or amongst the Jewish community, it's Gentile. What it literally means is not one of us. I mean, Gentile, there are Jews and Gentiles. That's how the Jewish community separates things. You're either part of the Jewish community or you're not, in which case you're a Gentile, okay? And in the case of China, you're either Chinese, Han Chinese, or you're Guaylo, which is politely translated to foreigner, but can also be translated to barbarian. In other words, in each one of these, it ain't a compliment. You know, it's almost like, oh, sorry. You're not Japanese. And it comes with other things as well. Barbarians are generally stupid. They tend to have poor sanitation. None of this is true. None of this is right. But these are still standard words used in those countries. And okay, that's fair enough, all right? You know, I'm not trying to kick off with the whole of China. There's more than a billion people there and the economy's a lot bigger than me on my own. But my point is this, that every culture has its blind spots, whatever it may be. And that just hasn't changed throughout history. Using the really horrible one, slavery. If you look at the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus, there is nothing there to get offended or angry about. Turn the other cheek, do unto others as you'd have done unto yourself. All these things are wise words, but the only off-tune note in the whole of the New Testament is when Jesus says, slaves obey your masters. Now, he's not saying that slavery is a good thing, but slaves obey your masters is basically know your place. And yeah, that, that's a problem. 
But that's because it was written at a time when slavery was completely normal. And I've said this before, from the Aztecs to the Zulus, every civilization had some form of slavery in one form or another. Sorry, that's the way it is. What is best remembered is the transatlantic slave trade because that was the biggest one. But it wasn't the longest running one. That would have been the one from North Africa by the Corsairs of, of North Africa, the pirates of North Africa. Going from round about 1500 into the 1800s and over that period of time, it's estimated that more than a million, almost all white people, were nabbed from basically coastal Italy, coastal Spain, southern France, maybe a bit of Portugal as well. There was a famous incident in the 1600s where Baltimore, not the one in America, the one in Ireland, basically a Muslim pirate turned up who actually this Muslim pirate was of Dutch descent. He grew up in the Netherlands. He himself got captured, converted to Islam, and ended up running his own pirate ship. He turned up at this small village in Ireland and shipped off everybody. Indeed, in the late Renaissance era, in, particularly in, in southern Italy, there are these coastal Renaissance towns that have been completely deserted. Why? Because they were so regularly raided by these pirates that it was just simply safer to move further inland. It was dangerous. You, nobody wants to be enslaved. So my point is, slavery has been around for thousands of years in every culture, and it's horrible and nasty. But it's also a complex conversation, which we're not going to go into now. But just because somebody owned a slave does not mean that we now have to ignore them in history. George Washington was a slave owner. George Washington also managed to lose control of his troops in the Seven Years' War, known as the French-Indian Wars in America, and was basically in charge of a massacre that happened. These things are true. These things are black marks against that man. But he's also the founding father and key general in the War of Independence of America, and you can't really have a conversation about the history of America without George Washington. Because, and this goes back to my original point about this cancelling of people and, you know, dismissing of people, people are complicated. You can have terrible people who do good things, and you have good people who inadvertently do terrible things. We are all multi-layered. We all have our demons. If you like, the greatest of us are able to rise up above those base impulses and try and help others to do the same. But the ones that didn't doesn't mean we should then ignore them or erase them from history, because at the very least, we should be able to learn from their mistakes. So just a couple more examples to wrap things up. But before I do, this is an unusual episode, I know, but I am just going to say, please click like, please give us a review, please subscribe, please tell somebody else about it. The numbers are going up. Thank you. Thank you very much. But please, please just spread the word a little bit on this. And also every Tuesday this comes out, look for me at Jem Daduccio on Twitter. I tweet out a link to the latest episode. It'd be great if you could retweet that. Thank you. I'll take it to two different extremes for two different Americans. One, Laura Ingalls Wilder, the lady who wrote Little House on the Prairie. In 2018, there was a huge furore because people pointed out in the original versions of these books, there's racist language. The, the, if you like, the most infamous line is, no humans lived in this area except for Indians. Well, A, that's a considered now a racist term for Native Americans, and B, well, they are also humans too. So yeah, that's racist. But is it representative 
of a frontier type attitude of an American in the 1800s? Yes, it is. And I think that's something that we need to keep in there and have the conversation. Now, is it suitable for children? Maybe we have an edited version and we have an, a non-edited version to be studied at university. But generally, Little House on the Prairie is considered a nice, positive story, pretty innocuous. But the last one I'm going to say, which is the big thing that's being talked about for the last four or five years, is the kind of the Me Too movement. Now, for, for the record, I, I absolutely stand behind. If anybody has been sexually harassed or sexually intimidated or anything like that, that's wrong. Absolutely go to HR, go to the authorities, do whatever you can. And you get people like Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, and somebody else who come on to in a moment. But I just want to talk about Weinstein for a moment, and to a certain extent, Kevin Spacey, because did what they do was it awful? Yes, absolutely. Should they be punished? Absolutely. These things, this is Caravaggio sort of levels of destroying other people's lives. But like Caravaggio, there are, will remain. Harvey Weinstein can be an evil sexual predator and he can be an exceptionally good producer of quality films. When you look at the list of the things that the Weinstein Company and prior to that, the other companies that he worked in and was acting as a producer created, yes, of course, there's a lot of populist garbage out there. But think about it. Every Quentin Tarantino movie from Pulp Fiction up to Hateful Eight, because after that, Harvey Weinstein basically was disgraced. All those Tarantino movies Harvey Weinstein produced. Does that mean we're not allowed to watch them anymore? What about things like uh, Fruitvale Station? If you don't know what that is, it's a small independent movie which was Ryan Coogler's directorial debut. It's an incredibly powerful movie about basically racism in the police force and, and a true story about violence around a black community. And it stars Michael B. Jordan. Now, Michael B. Jordan had been in things before, but this was the point where people recognized him as a real up-and-coming young star. You know, a young man. He'd gone from being a boy in the wire to now a young man, and boy, was he powerful in that. And it didn't hurt Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan either, because the next gig they did together, the next movie that Ryan Coogler directed, was Creed, an amazing reboot of the Rocky series. And the next one for Ryan Coogler was Black Panther, an incredibly important movie in cinema and again also had Michael B. Jordan not exactly starring but certainly a major character in it I live my entire life waiting for this moment those two have found a great way to work together and all of that was started by Harvey Weinstein back to Shakespeare again who is by the way the most listed screenwriter on IMDB because people keep redoing his plays into movies and there was one called Macbeth starring Michael Fassbender it's an amazing version of Macbeth Harvey Weinstein produced so are we not allowed to watch these anymore is it because are we back to the Albert Speer thing because of the man does that mean we're not allowed to like anything else or do we have to put a little message on this be aware this was funded by a man who's a sexual predator Here's a little sad one. Also, the Weinstein Company produced Paddington. Now, there's a movie that there's just nothing in it to be offended by. In fact, it's pro-immigration. And yet, ugh, yes, sorry, it's got the hands of Harvey Weinstein on them too. So look, I'm not in any way letting these people off the hook. Going back to Caravaggio, because let's face it, that's the one that's completely uncontroversial. Very few people are doing hashtag cancel Caravaggio on Twitter. But the point is this, I, I 
I don't, I don't, I can't, I don't have the answers for you. Do we have to put these people in a separate category or do we accept their flaws and enjoy what they created? People were killed. People, people's lives were destroyed with people like Weinstein. Are we allowed to keep watching this stuff? Seven's an amazing movie. Usual Suspects is an amazing movie. But yeah, Kevin Spacey's in both of them. And he's Oscar winning in one of them. So there is this huge, interesting conversation to be had. And the last thing I'll leave you with to bring it back to history is that if you're sitting there expecting the person you're reading about in history to think exactly the way you do, and we're talking about more than 50 years ago, you're kidding yourself. It does not make them a bad person. You have to take them in the context of their time. And even in their time, people recognized intolerant individuals and, and things like that. Lovecraft, as an example, even in the early 20th century, something like that would have raised eyebrows to most democratic, left-leaning individuals in America going, yeah, that that's not right. So yeah, I mean, these people can be called out even in their own time, and I think that's an important thing to remember, but let's not use the lens of our current list of what's right and wrong to condemn people from a time when there was simply a different list. That's it. Hope you enjoyed it. Tough one this time round. Please love to get your thoughts. Feel free to, to send me messages on Twitter. Please don't hate me. Uh, I've tried to be as nuanced as possible on this. Thank you, and as always, hopefully speak to you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.